0: Just a quick message before the show begins. We're a year in now and I've really enjoyed doing this and I hope you've been enjoying it too. If you have, then please like and share the content and get in touch with any thoughts and feedback and hopefully we can keep growing the show and getting more incredible guests. Thanks and back to the show. I'm Adam Gow, the DJ formerly and sometimes currently known as WaxOn. Welcome to the Once A DJ podcast. DJing and DJ culture have been a huge part of my life, for better or worse. They've given me a massive buzz at times and loads of stress at others, and taught me a load of valuable lessons along the way. On this podcast, I speak to DJs from around the world who've made the names when it was just about skills and selection, not social media followers. We'll discuss their journey through Ascendancy and what part it plays in their life now, whether they're still on the scene, said goodbye to the decks forever, or still get a sneaky mixing when life gives them the chance. Whatever road they've travelled, they were always once a DJ. Uh, Welcome to episode 3 of Once a DJ. Today I'm joined by Deep House DJ, record producer, writer and co-founder of Umbrella magazine, Mr Anthony Teasdale. We're going to chat about the boom and bust of the UK club scene, how DJs can improve the personal brand and the lessons that you learn that apply more widely to careers and business in general. Anthony, thanks so much for coming on the show. To kick things off, can you tell us how you got into DJing? So, I was always like one of
1: these kids who like music. And um, I think one of the key things about being a DJ is that you're enforcing your music taste on someone else. So I was one of these annoying kids who like Bring records into school, or tell people about records I liked. You know, I was like, I mean, nine years old, i been into Adam and the Ants and mm. buying records and just just liking it. You know, and liking the whole thing around. I mean, a real pop music nut. Um, and so, when I started going clubbing in 1987, when I was 15, house music was just coming in. Like this was not acid house which is the culture it was house music from chicago the latest trendy music to come in and um i just liked it i'd electronic electronic music always i like break dancing and anything like that so that was very much a natural thing for me
0: was that a big thing was was the house music coming into liverpool specifically in the way that northern soul went into wigan
1: no no house music i would say appeared in 87th in london and manchester And it was just the music of clubs. I was only 15, 16, so just starting to go. But it was just the trend that what you've got to see is there there was houses that came in, but you were still going to a club having to wear a suit or a blazer. I used to wear a blazer, a tie, and a pair of 501s. And I had grease back hair. And that was the like Levi's look of the time. Um, And I would go and buy my clothes from Affleck's Palace in Manchester flipping liverpool and that was the thing that house music was just a soundtrack it was not a culture change then 1988 acid house came in which was a culture change based around a type of house music from chicago and the culture change came from ibiza ecstasy dancing all night wearing the smiley face and bagging clothing and basically that was that was a total culture change as opposed to when House first came in, which was just the latest cool soundtrack. So there is a difference there. And I was desperate. I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be a football journalist. And you had to show that you'd done stuff to get in on the course. It was a highly subscribed course. So they had a six Form radio show. And I said, well, I like Acid House music. Can I do uh, Acid House on six Form radio? And they said, yes. So I did that with some records and some tapes, and I just quite liked it because I like enforcing my music taste on people. And I remember, like, really getting into the whole rave thing in '89. You know, going on convoys on the M6 to Blackburn looking for parties and all that. And I started nagging a guy who was a DJ in a a local fun pub where they. they like it was until twelve, and they played house music. And I could start wanted to play. You know, I started I had some twelve into. Can I play? Can I play? And he used to let me do twenty minutes. I couldn't mix, but I immediately got that buzz. And what you get with DJing is you get a, an interaction from the crowd straight away. It's a live performance, and suddenly there is a bug. And if you are the sort of person who does like to perform, it's it's an instant hit so by summer 1990 I was you know this was something I wanted to do and I think what was interesting this was at the time when DJs were becoming a focus for the night you know the the house scene didn't have stars because most music scenes are based on groups if you think about it but house was based on DJs probably in the way that only before the soul scene and the northern soul scene had before but this was on a big level yeah And what you got was DJs were you would say run a a club in Manchester and you would be booked to play at a club in London on the basis of the fact that you ran a club in Manchester. And I think that's quite an early thing about learning about branding. Because you naturally you think, well I'm as good as him or, you know I'm better than him over there but how come he's got that gig and I haven't? Why <laughs> yeah. is he getting paid X and I'm not? Well, that's branding, isn't it? Because that person has demonstrated yeah. something. So that was an early lesson for me. So I started DJing at uni. Turned up on my first night uh, at Birmingham Polytechnic. Bought some records. Said, "Can I DJ?" Played a load of like, um, like nice house records, Balare records. Obviously, everyone hated it. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Is that because is that because house hadn't really hit Birmingham yet? I would Does say it same? probably hit Birmingham, but it hadn't
1: hit students. Right, most students were into like you know the wonder stuff and the cure, whereas I liked you know all these like all these rave records instead. So that that it students were just basically weren't into that music. And yeah. when I went to house clubs in
0: Birmingham, it was full of locals. There was a few students. Okay, just to ask then. When you were DJing at that point, would you have had to be playing the newest record? Was there that pressure?
1: Not massively, because I was only mostly playing to students then. Mm. And I was known as, like, Tony's the rave DJ, the house DJ. So, and all, you know, so I'd buy the new stuff, but there'd be something like a year before that I would play. And I've always been very open-minded. Also, I didn't have that many records, you know? Yeah. So I had to fill up with old records, because I'd run out. So, and, you know, I'd get 30 quid for doing the student union bar or something like that. And you also learn that you have to be a bit flexible. When you're not playing to people who are there specifically for your music, you have to be realistic about it and play things they're going to like as well. You know yeah. and, you know what I mean? And it does teach you a lot about... Um, people will tell you if they don't like it. Do you know what
0: I mean? Yeah, we've, we talked in... in- uh, the first episode, we did very much about that, about you can be the best at a certain thing in the world, but you've got to think about the room. Yeah, you, you've you got to know, and that's what DJing will teach you,
1: because you turn up, and they are expecting something, and you've got something else, and they will. it will soon become clear that's the case. So you have to be wary. You have to know that uh, it's not like you're playing for the crowd, but you have to have the, cl- the crowd in mind. And if they don't like it, then it's sort of your fault, you know. Or it's the promoter's fault for booking you for the wrong thing. But I would play house, but I'd also play like what you call baggy, you know, Stone Roses or The Farm or The Happy Mondays, that sort of thing. And then from into the early 90s, I would nag the DJs around Birmingham who ran clubs if I could warm up at their, their events and and again that was teaching you don't ask people for favors what you've got to do is give them a solution to a problem yeah yeah so if you're running a club you want someone who's going to warm up from 9 to 11 without ruining the atmosphere who they can pay quite you know give a little bit of money to do you see what i mean
0: yeah, it's really important knowing your place as the warm up DJ as well, isn't it? Not yeah. going in with all the newest tunes and no having that sense of tact, having that sense of tact. Yeah,
1: and I mean, again, harder it when you're starting off because you don't have many records, Well so you're not getting sent records as we did. But as stuff gone on, you know, I start have more records, so I, c- I could really start to warm up because. You can do it because you don't want to spoil it for the next DJ, but actually you should be doing it for the crowd because the crowd have turned up at half nine. They just want a drink. You know what I mean? They don't want to dance yet. They're not... For people to dance, they have to really feel it. Their drugs have to kick in. They have to... have drunk enough. They have to be in that mood and you cannot force it by playing big tunes at half nine. Keep, Keep the volume down, let people have a drink. And also, you can play perhaps records that you only ever hear on your stereo and then you can play them loud. They sound great, you know, so Mm. it's an opportunity as well. Um, So that, so I was learning a lot then about the craft of DJing, about crowd psychology um, and about branding, you know. And what I mean by that is that every DJ, like every worker has a personal brand and you could improve your brand by doing things. So if you were warming up at a club regularly, you might be able to put their name after your name in brackets. And the the name in brackets, the thing, the other thing you do, was incredibly important in those days. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. And in fact, the big DJs of the time in the 90s were ones who basically started Clubs Up in 1988 and 1989. And because they were the only people who did it, and this was a scene looking for figures, the stars they became the stars and so they played at each other's club and therefore in terms of branding you built a belief up and people would book you because they'd heard of you they didn't know whether you were good or not they'd heard of you and that whatever your business is you know whether you're in tech or media whatever your personal brands can be improved and the better it is, the more likely you're going to get work. People won't look at your details, really. They just think, have I heard of him? Does she play at a club that I like? Uh, did I hear her record? Do you see what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah. And those brackets, it's its like brand equity, isn't it? It's brand equity. It shows that you've done something else. What was quite interesting,
1: Jane really exploded from probably about 1993 onwards. And all these Johnny-come-latelys came in. Bah. And I'd think, you're not cool. I've been doing this years. But what was worse was they'd suddenly get loads of work. And you think, well, how come <laughs> she is getting that gig? How come he is playing there? Well, he might have had a record out. She might be famous for something else. I mean, I think at one stage, the whole cast of Brookside was a DJ. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And, and you could say, well, this is nonsense. But when you put the guy from Brookside in, the club was full, so it's the promoter. It made sense. You know, and that is the power of branding. You know, I remember Boy George suddenly became a DJ. And Boy George was playing every week and, you know, I'm sure getting handsomely paid for it. Was Boy George a better DJ than all the other bedroom DJs? Not at all. But he was Boy George. And that was the important thing. These are lessons around branding that you learn. And uh, and I think that's why DJing is so good for your career. Because it teaches you audience uh, interaction. It teaches you branding. It teaches you what you can create for your audience. And it
0: teaches you, you how you've got to constantly upskill. They're all really valuable things. Yeah, it's weird. I, I signed up one of our mutual friends to um, spam emails from Carl Cox DJ Academy, thinking that it was going to be quite amusing, Elliot, yeah, in case you wondered. I yeah. thought, yeah, this will annoy him. And then what I, what I didn't think about is that I was going to get all the remarketing um, adverts from them. And I get them yeah. all. And, and, it, and the more of these adverts that I saw, the more I just started thinking, I should probably actually learn some stuff because I'm sure from like house DJs, I could learn a lot with technique because I started off with scratching and then yeah. into mixing hip hop and I've never been. Yeah. And then with funk and soul, you there's only so much you tend to yeah, mix of course. Them, unless you're yeah, of course. insanely talented. But I think there's yeah. probably some like house music techniques that would be really useful like using pan, for example. So there's a load of that stuff, uh, but that's just me digressing. Yeah, yeah, no, I quite like I quite I'd say there's something in that because for certain things you can't mix
1: or you'll mix say after an eight bar section. House DJs are really good at mixing and crossfading this sort of thing, but less good at scratching. So I used to look at hip hop DJs, see how they transferred between records. Didn't always have to do a really long mix. You could just go from the end of one eight bar section on one record to the beginning of another eight bar on another. Switch over, not as long as there's no gap and it flows, it it's absolutely fine and you should upskill. We can all learn, you know what I mean. Again, that's what DJing teaches you. And I think the best thing for me as a DJ was being a clubber. I knew what it was like. I've been a club since nineteen eighty-seven. I was on the floor at all the big clubs of the late eighties, early nineties. So I understood what worked and what didn't. You know, and and yeah, you've got to know that. And I would look at the DJ. Why? What's he doing there? That's great. I don't do that. That brings an energy. I might bring that in or. More importantly, what's that record? Because then that was the the only way you'd go and really hear new music was going out to clubs or going to a record shop. So a night out, you might hear five records you absolutely love. And then on Monday, you're back in the record shop singing this record. You know, that's how it worked. Totally. It all fed on itself. Yeah.
0: So when you were saying about it being around 93, that DJing really took off. Yeah. Is that then when the DJ became the star yeah, I think that... I think the DJs, the star... I mean, they were... DJs were size in the
1: days of Seoul in London, in Soho, at clubs like Crackers, which was a afternoon club, which a lot of the old house DJs went to when they were kids. Certainly with the Northern Soul thing, but really it was the rave thing that made it a big... You know, the post-acid house thing that made the DJ the star. So the Hacienda was the first place... Where people clapped the DJ at the end of the night, you know. Right. Yeah. And that was like, you know, you think, what are they, what are they clapping the DJ for? Because before then, the DJ was just some fella in the corner you didn't look at. The least, each, the least interesting person there, you know. No one's <laughs> was interested in the DJ. They were either like that in cool clubs or they were like wallies who used to like talk rubbish on the mic. They were the yeah. laughing stock. Do you know what I mean? so the idea that a dj would be cool and be you know obviously for me was like bloody hell really um but the dj became the performance artist and i would say that's from 89 onwards but by 92 93 loads of students get into it and everyone's got wants a pair of decks yeah everyone wants a pair of decks why do they want a pair of decks because djing is fun and also we were getting paid quite well if they could do it you know and if you are of a certain type of person that liked to promote yourself or show off, DJing was the way to do it. But the ones who were like that never lasted long. Because most of the time it's a bit of a slog. You know what I mean? Yeah. You've got to absolutely love it. You've got to absolutely love it. Like any of these things. Like being a guitarist. Like being a writer. Like being an artist. You know, people go, oh, well, that sounds funny, He's, He's a writer for a living. That's fantastic. But, you know, to get any good, you have to practice and practice and practice. They all, they're all all the same, you know. Yeah. And it's, well, the, it's the hard work in the end that keeps you going. And and a love for it. You've got to enjoy it. Cause if you don't, you can't get... I remember late 90s, early 2000s, there was quite a lot of cynicism in DJing at the time. A lot of people getting very bored with it and had forgotten that they didn't have to do a normal job. But when the scene collapsed in the early 2000s, which it did, they all soon remember that actually getting paid 500 quid to DJ for two hours is not normal. <laughs>
0: you know, you soon learn your lesson there. Yeah. So, that's interesting what you've just been saying because what I was wondering about and trying, trying to get to with the question about did when did the DJ become the star is yeah. did the buzz that you got from DJing change over time because the Uh, perception of the DJ changed over time or was that always secondary to you to the buzz of just actually being there and doing it like did you need did your ego need to feed off it or were you just all about mixing I just like I I mean I like enforcing my music taste on people like I like
1: enforcing my taste in books or films on people it's just a very immediate way to do it I also like I find that once you learned to mix I love that way that I could say mix a break beat from one track into an ambient outro in another and make something new and i liked that energy i liked that life when you've got two records going and they're both completely in sync and you're switching you're crossfading between the two there's a real energy there and the crowd feed off that because it's a lot li- it's you're no longer just playing record you're creating something new and it's a live performance
0: yeah it's a live remix
1: yeah and you're like bang 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 you know bang here's the jump on that bang bang and they recognize it and you watch that lift so yeah it is that but it, i didn't need that i didn't need everyone to be looking at me to do it um i was i suppose a big club that i was part of was called high spirits at the university of leicester i was doing a postgraduate which was funded by the eu at leicester and it, you know, my name got around that I was a DJ and they were starting it. So I was, you know, I got in and, you know, getting a residency. The residency was key in those days because you meant you worked every week and that you could you could leverage your brand that you had from your brackets after the name to get work elsewhere. Yeah. And I was playing at High Spirits in what I think is really interesting, which I would call the second wave of um, clubbing post house so acid house first wave revolution 88 89. Second wave which i find much more interesting would be from about 92 to about 97 that's when the super club happens that's cream in liverpool yeah. back to basics in uh leeds ministry of sound in london all those places that were like in every town there was a big deal house club yeah Everyone got fancy, because Dressing Up Fancy came in after everyone had been wearing rave clothes. Dressing Up Fancy came in. And what happened was it went from a cool select group of people in between 1988 and 1991 to pretty much anyone. Yeah, students, normal kids, or everyone up for it. And every club had it. uh, Every town had a club like that. So High Spirit in Leicester was the one I was doing. Leicester had a very good clubbing scene before that. Anyway, there's they'd always been very ahead of that. lot good DJs, in Leicester. So it was very fertile anyway, because there was such a strong tradition in Leicester before High Spirit started anyway. But we had all these students
0: come. Because it's a three-university city, isn't it, Leicester?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's loads of students there, loads of clued-up local people there as well, and a tradition of dance music in Leicester already. And you've got this explosion around the country. So, Leicester's High Spirits became the club of the moment during that explosion. And I was playing there every every couple of weeks. And I played two sets in two separate rooms. And I'm playing with the big DJs at the time. About 1,600 people in this little crow's nest DJing box. And I, you know, was doing working on my sets so hard all through the week to play there how long were your sets oh i would play like i'd play an hour and a half in one room then two hours three hours in another right it was great it was really great around the guest and um yeah the buzz you get from that it's fantastic fantastic but there was one interesting thing again this goes on branding we had Jeremy Healy, is a DJ, was the big DJ of the time. Mm. And we had to have him on on that night because we knew we'd sell out if we had him. But he could only do something literally like nine till ten. So he came on. He did his gig. The club's half empty. Leaves. Fine. I'm on. Everyone's going mad. Afterwards, everyone's thinking, did you hear Healy? He was amazing. And it was me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that that's fine because the fact that he was on meant they had um thrown so much in that they were gonna have a good time. They'd got their best clothes, they were on it before, they were drinking before, they were doing whatever they wanted to do before. They were enforcing they were saying, Right, I'm in on this night. Healy Jeremy Healy is on. It didn't matter actually that he'd gone by the time they arrived. The belief was there. But that shows you again, the power of branding. DJing really is so much about that side of it, of getting gigs is so much about the brand. And then obviously you have to be able to deliver and do the business. And that's about passion. It's about love of music and it's about practice. It's about experience and knowing.
0: So they all came in so many life lessons I got there. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying Once A DJ. I wanted to create a product for the listeners to be able to support the show and for the guests as a token of gratitude for being on. So I've teamed up with Sure Shot Shop to create some Once to DJ 45 RPM adapter clamps. These are my weapon of choice as a 45 adapter as they add stability and grip to aid you in any setup. These are available for £25 each plus flat fee postage from 12dJ.bigcartel.com. And if you'd like to see the other models you can buy and also customise, check out showshotshop.com. If you're a DJ who's been wanting to get into production but don't know where to start, or if you're looking to level up your beat making skills, look no further than howtomakemusic.co's online courses and personal coaching. Chris, the founder of How To Make Music, as well as knowing a load about music production, was once a DJ and so his courses are ideal for the likes of us. From the Music Theory Essentials course to the incredibly thorough Ableton Turbo Start, there's a ton of good information to get you developing your music production skills. In addition to the video tutorials, there's a load of reference guides and they even offer personal coaching to get you where you want to be even quicker. And if you buy any course at howtomakemusic.co using the code ONCEADJ at checkout, you'll receive 10% off. So what you're waiting for, visit howtomakemusic.co. I think a lot of people when they get into DJing as well though they, they they don't appreciate how long it takes to grow and develop organically yeah because C- I've known people over the years who chased certain types of music i mean i'm not a yeah. successful dj i've i've done what i've done and i've enjoyed it but there's been people i saw like particularly like when like electro indie was a big thing all of a sudden they've like sacked off everything else and they're doing that in the hope that they can Get a name in that thing But as long as you're chasing Something that's already emerged You're never going to be On the right wave to be part of it And it's just wanting to get that hack Rather than being like What's the music that I love Yeah I'm going to do that I'm going to do it well And I'm just going to keep on with that And see where it takes me
1: Yeah that's it isn't it So they are They're like I want the favour that I want to But it it never lasts Because they don't really love it Do you know what I mean? Yeah they, they they chase that next thing. And it's not about that. You've got to really like it. Anything, you know, any artistic endeavor, you have to like it and remain liking it or else you'll fail. You know, you do hear a lot like, oh, I've decided to become a DJ. Oh, right, okay. Most people I know who became DJs were DJs cause, just because they had loads of records. I had loads of records. Yeah. So it made sense
0: to DJ. So that you brings know, me on to my that, next question then. Well, um, mailing lists. Did you get on did you manage yeah. to get on mailing this for me that was like the thing i never never managed to do
1: Yeah again i did because uh, actually what i did High Spirits in Leicester was such a big deal you know we were in all the magazines all this sort of stuff people just said start what happened you get on the odd one you ring up can you send me records can you send me records and then when you become a big deal the relationship changes they want to send you records do you see? So they will get your address off another company and they will send you records. So it was getting to a stage where I would get, let's say, I don't know, 50 records a week. Plenty. So you got a lot of records. And also, another thing that I knew I wanted to do was I wanted to be a record reviewer. And there was a magazine called Mixmag Update. So Mixmag was the house music bible. Yeah. And it did a weekly called update, which was for DJs and wannabe DJs, full of record reviews. And basically I'd got to know them at Mixbag because high spirits in um advertised in Mixbag. And I said to them, Oh, can I do some reviews? Oh, they are, can you write? Yeah. I've got a degree in journalism. And so I started doing that. And again, that was very good for my brand, because I could also write Mixmag update after my name again people saw my name so wanted to send me records so again you're constantly you're reinforcing who you are in that scene by put by doing something like that and I was getting the the uh, records every week now if you don't know how that works how that works is okay if you are a record company especially back then you wanted to see whether people liked your records or not because then you, and what you did you'd either send them out to DJs, from an in-house promotional team or you'd send them to, uh, via an independent promotional team they would go to djs and then you got a form with that okay and you would write what you thought on the record you know five out of five three out of five floor filler this is rubbish i hate this send it back and They always wanted the reactions because they had to feed back to the record companies. And the record companies would look at that information and work out whether they would release the record or not on that. They would work out what would be the A side, what would be the B side, you know. And in those days, there were lots of what were called double packs. If you were a remixer in the mid-90s, you were making what Armin Van Helden once said was Crazy Bank. Okay, <laughs> because someone would come in and say, Oh, we want you to remix Chris Rhea, you know, or we'll Fleetwood back or something like that. And people get 20 grand to do it, and they do it in an afternoon, mm-hmm. you know. So I know certain big DJs and who bought houses off the back of the remix explosion. So it was all about the but what you what started to happen was DJs started getting lazy. Because they were getting all the records sent to them, they stopped buying records. So every DJ was playing the same records because they'd all been sent them that week. Right. Only the great DJs were still buying the weird... Yeah, the weirder, the the imports and things like that. A lot of DJs got very lazy. And another thing, there was another side to um, getting the records DJs would sell those records as well. Yeah. And they would go to a local record shop, often be swapped for records people wanted, or DJs would get, you know, some money for them. And that's how that system worked. So what happened was, even if a DJ didn't like a record, that that record would eventually end up with the right person who liked that sort of music. So it, it fed on itself. It always reached the right people in the end.
0: So that's how it worked in those days. Yeah. So then you got into producing as well, didn't you?
1: Yeah. I played guitar a bit as a kid. I was quite musical anyway. And again, I mean, when I first started, I thought, how do you even make this? You know, because you'd hear, oh, well, he's in the studio. I used to think, what do you do when you're in the studio? Oh, I don't know. Do you know? But we got asked at a record shop where i was working for a bit to do one and i started seeing the basics of it and me mum and me nan bought me a 50 quid casio keyboard and i bought a book of beat i bought the beatles sock book which all had chords in and i just learned to play chords because what i found was so-, so many dj's couldn't play an instrument so they could produce or sample but they couldn't play an instrument but All the stuff I liked was quite musical. I was really into Deep House, which was quite musical, like Mr. Fingers and stuff like that. So I wanted to learn. You know, I didn't want to be frustrated and think, well, I can't can't do that. So you would go in with what was called an engineer. And the engineer would often do everything for you. But I always thought, again, that was a bit out of order because you'd think, oh, that DJ says he's made that record, but I know the engineer's played everything. So when I did it, I could go in and play everything. And you started learning how to do it. You work with an engineer, and they, they used to, there used to be a, a program called Cubase, which was a MIDI program, and that's how you made records. I'd play some chords, and it would get put together with some drums, I started doing it. So my first record was with the High Spirits Club, and it was made in Nottingham. And I took all my records that I wanted it to sound like to the studio. I knew a little bit that by then. And um, I made it and it came out viral. And it's actually still quite sought after and it's on YouTube. And I just quite enjoyed it. My only problem was I was broke. So hiring the studio for 150 quid a day in 1995, 1996 was really difficult
0: so did you do that independently then and, and pay out your own pocket
1: yeah right yeah but then i did one and a guy called charlie hall was a dj ran a label and he heard this track i'd made and he said look i think this is great let's release it and he paid for me to go in and do another side which i did and that was a record called deep in nw5 and that saw i wouldn't say it blew up in the terms of it was hugely popular. But among people who liked, you know, serious house music and people who really liked good stuff, it was really rated. And I got a lot of work on the back of that. So, what all throughout this time, what I'm doing, I am building a career around the things I do. And I'm boosting myself by creating. So, I am DJing. That feeds into me being a music writer that feeds into me being a music producer which in turn feeds into me getting a DJ gig somewhere cuz somewhere in someone in Portugal likes my record. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. And I think for anyone listening to this who is looking at whatever career they're in, that that's what I really learned, things feed into each other. Don't be don't just say, "Oh, I just want to make, let's say, short films." My view would be make an advert for someone then you might get a short film on the back of that or make a short film and someone might offer you an advert. That advert might be seen by someone who wants to finance a film. You know what I mean? Don't be too precious. Don't be too pure. Just think of that. Anything It's vaguely related, do it.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And it, and it comes into that. It's like oh, everything's reinforcing that personal brand again, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I knew this when me and our mutual friend, Matt Reynolds, who's a graphic designer, when me and Matt started Umbrella Magazine, which is our joint magazine together, I think one of the reasons we did it, we had this joint passion for a certain type of urbanism that we wanted to highlight. But we also knew that it was good for prospective employers.
0: Yeah. So rather than we're DJing, we're talking now more about the creative services. Yeah. Yeah. If you're listening to
1: this, and you maybe are a graphic designer, so it is all that. The principles are always the same. Just do more and more stuff, and it, that anything gets your name out there. Improve your skill set, whatever that is.
0: Yeah, I've I've spoken to people before, say designers, for example. They might have come out of university and got a good degree, and they think yeah. that's enough. No, and and you say to them, "Well, wh- what have you done? What else have you done?" And they just think, yeah. "Well, I've got this degree." but there's just so much more to it than that. You've got to think about who you're competing against for these things. You're, you're competing to be in a certain part of someone's brain. Yeah, absolutely. And you've got to show that you can do all these different things. And every different thing you do might be a little different touch point for someone to remember you in a different conversation. Yeah. But yeah, they all contribute yeah. together. Yeah,
1: it's like when I set out in, in life, I wanted to be a football journalist because that looked fun. I just didn't know anyone who was a journalist because no one well, at my school none of their parents were I went to very normal school so I went on a journey and it's landed me here I'm not a football journalist though I do write about football occasionally but it's about that journey it's about it's going having an end point but realizing that you'll be sent off that in different directions and that's okay and don't be too precious about it
0: yeah because a big thing about doing this podcast in the first place is I want to look at how a passion can fuel different parts of your life yeah. and what this relationship with a passion throughout life is and some people will use a lot of what they get out of DJing to pivot off into other things yeah so, and some of them might be really close They might go off and just do mastering or or sync music for example or something yeah or they might just use yeah. some of the skills they've got in other ways so like when you were talking about reading a room and I was thinking about the sort of things you do do you think that reading a room helps if you go in to pitch for a new piece of creative work and you've got four people in front of you and you, you need to know how to be, what the atmosphere is?
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah, do your research before. When I was going to play at a club, I would often go the week before anyway to see what it was like. Yeah. So if, you, so if you're pitching a piece of creative or you're writing a CV, you tailor it to your audience. You don't completely change what you are you do tailor there's a nice mid ground you see what I mean yeah like I did a gig recently and these were people my age early 50s and older but they were cool music industry people so I could play weirder music than I was perhaps planning on it was great and in fact the guy who was running it said no you can go a bit harder if you want and again that's the crowd is telling you so if you're pitching creative to someone you've got there's got to be a difference, isn't there? If you're pitching to a local council or you're pitching to the latest social media agency in East London, they're different things, aren't they? They expect different things. You would wear different clothes, maybe. You look, you're look. you still you. You're still doing stuff, but you have to tailor it.
0: Yeah, definitely. So your DJing career is pretty steady now and then you're starting to write and produce and get some records out there. Yeah. What, what's the next point from there in the journey? I think... It probably looked quite effortless and it wasn't it was constant
1: work and you always know that if you didn't try you'd be forgotten about in weeks mm-hmm. um and there were some people i've talked to them who were i mean i did pretty well and i was around a lot but it always felt a bit of a slog there were some people i know who ran clubs who were like the club of the moment if you run a big club before 1993 i said this earlier you could have a 10-year career off the back of that club. After 93, left so. And they had a stage where, you know, they were playing constantly diary full Friday, Saturday and a Sunday and earning something like a grand a week. So for me, it was always a bit harder. I had, I had plenty, but not as much as I wanted. You know, it was only through sheer hard work and, you know, teaching myself to produce and writing more, then I got more and more. But I think what I found was really interesting is when it all collapsed after the millennium. And I think there was a really good lesson there for a lot of people. So the dominant culture throughout the, the 90s was rave culture, whether that was house music, drum and bass, big beat. You know, I was playing at the end, which was a really cool club in London every week. You know, I'm playing with the big DJs around. Mm. I'm quite a big DJ myself. You know, I'm on the same bill as, like, really big deal. Like, you know, I remember, like, I'd be playing with Norman Cook or Darren Emerson from Underworld, And, you know, these were people I was hanging around all the time. And it was great. And I was uh, a writer for Mixed Bag Update, which had become Seven Magazine. And I was deputy editor there. So I was, like, everywhere in that scene. And then what happened in about 2000... 2001, everyone's work fell off a cliff. Right. And what killed us was people get younger, people were getting bored of it. And all the ones coming through didn't like it. Yeah. They preferred the libertines. They preferred, you know, the strokes, all that sort of look. And then maybe going into that electro clash type stuff. And suddenly, all these house DJs have been taking it for granted and then a big money every weekend playing all over the world, they lost all their work, all of it. And it was really fascinating. And what happened was, was that, and this was all killed, I think, at the at Millennium Eve, right? Because before Millennium Eve, you were talking to promoters, and they were gonna, they were all saying how much money they were going to wear. And DJs were getting paid, and I'm not exaggerating, for this is 20 years ago getting paid 30 grand to do a gig 20 years ago, right? Yeah. People, you know, were doing going to do very, very well. I was booked to play for the Ministry of Sound in Gibraltar, of all places. And then what happened? It got cancelled. And I talked to other people, and their gigs got cancelled as well. And what, ha- and what the market was telling you was that the market had just gone, no, actually... I don't want to spend 100 quid to go to a club. I'm just going to go to the pub with my mates. Yeah. And save money. Because people had pushed it too far. Everyone had got greedy. And normal people went, actually, I don't need to spend 500 quid on that night. I'll just go out. And that was a real moment. And it came off the cliff after that for so many of us. Seven Magazine, which is the mag I was working at. In the years after that closed, this, this, all the dance music, like the like uh, Ministry magazine closed, music magazine closed. Uh, they were all closing. No one's getting gigs anymore. And people who, you know, who a year before were you know DJing, you know, at gorgeous nightclubs and in, e- in Ibiza, were back working for the gas board. You know, thinking where did it all go wrong. <laughs> You know, so you learn that was a good lesson there. Uh, I was covered a bit because I could write. So I then went from being a DJ purely to being a writer, moving into Men's Magazines.
0: Hey, guys. I hope you're enjoying Once A DJ. I wanted to create a product for the listeners to be able to support the show and for the guests as a token of gratitude for being on. So I've teamed up with sure Shot Shop to create some Once to DJ 45 RPM adapter clamps. These are my weapon of choice as a 45 adapter as they add stability and grip to aid you in any setup. These are available for £25 each plus flat fee postage from onceadj.bigcartel.com. And if you'd like to see the other models you can buy and also customise, check out showshotshop.com. If you're a DJ who's been wanting to get into production but don't know where to start, or if you're looking to level up your beat making skills, look no further than howtomakemusic.co's online courses and personal coaching. Chris, the founder of How To Make Music, as well as knowing a load about music production, was once a DJ and so his courses are ideal for the likes of us. From the Music Theory Essentials course to the incredibly thorough Ableton Turbo Start, there's a ton of good information to get you developing your music production skills. In addition to the video tutorials, there's a load of reference guides and they even offer personal coaching to get you where you want to be even quicker. And if you buy any course at howtomakemusic.co using the code ONCEADJ at checkout, you'll receive 10% off. So what you're waiting for, visit howtomakemusic.co. Did you leverage the network that you'd built in DJing for any of those opportunities? Not, Not really, no, because it was a different one. People just came off the grid, they disappeared. Right,
1: You know, it was different. I did know some writer people through just going to events that Mixed Mag stuff was happening, other writers. So I had a link to that writing side. And for a while, and I was getting bored about writing about DJs and music. I wanted to write about other things. You know, I'd grown up in Merseyside in the 80s, and I was really into a a, a fanzine called The End, which was, um, well, it's the first fanzine. It was about football, but it wasn't really. It was about, clothes and urban culture and fellas you'd see around or local characters or old ladies or pets. You know, and I wanted to write about that. I had a real, like, you know, I wanted to write about things that I cared about. And so I went into men's magazines uh, to do that, but I was like, I was broke for years because I had to, I was basically moving over. And in a way, I sort of didn't really, I, did, I stopped DJing, I stopped getting booked and thought well that's it that's a young man's game you know i've done what i've done and then probably about eight nine years ago i started wanting to do it again and digital djing had come in and i was really fascinated by it you know i'd carried records all over europe and uh it was doing you know and i knew that it really did your backing you turn up <laughs> yes. you know looking like quasimozo you know, so digital DJing, interesting. Actually, on that, in terms of terrible gigs, because terrible gigs are really funny to talk about. And this is another example of how DJ teaches you a little bit of humility. I had this record out on this trendy label in Scotland called Soma, and I used to DJ up there. And because I was on Soma, trendy label, I got booked for gigs at cool clubs in mainland Europe. So... I got booked to play at this place in Barcelona, and you know, I mean, what a dream! You know what I mean? I'm not like, you no, know, I'm not building a wall or digging up the road here. But I'm going to, I'm going. Someone's paying me to go to Barcelona to DJ, amazing. So go over to Barcelona, and I'd said to my agent, um, "Do they know what music I play? So I play quite deep house, quite mellow stuff, groovy disco, you know." White girl friendly, all that sort of thing. Yeah, they know. Are you sure? Yeah, they know. They love. They love you. They also. They love you. Yeah, they <laughs> love you. So, I get met at Barcelona airport uh, by this fella, Cheering guy. Takes me to this fancy hotel in Barcelona. Yeah, you know, I feel like Tom Cruise here. And uh, we go out for a fancy meal, like you know, like dead fancy food on a massive plate with like three things. Yeah, you know, it's like it's like the dream. I'm living like a Russian billionaire. And he, and I can't wait for this gig. This is going to be the best gig of my life. Turn up, right? Open the door into this club. It's enormous. I'm expecting house music. But actually, what it sounds like, it sounds like an Eastern European car factory. <laughs> do you know what I mean? You know, there's this phrase, panel beaters of Prague. It was like that. Bang, 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 bang. Bang, bang, bang! It's like someone with a hammer hitting a steel
0: door. So what was it like, Gabotechno or something?
1: Like just like really fast, cheesy, trancey stuff. And I, right, I've got a load of tasteful deep house. So I'm put on. The DJ's like, bang, bang, bang. I'm on. I pick. I remember. And this is. This goes back to only having one box of records. So I have the box of records with my tasteful deep house in. Put on my least tasteful, least deep house record. I thought, they will dance to this, right? The record is by a guy called Dave Clark. It's called Red 3, you know. And it's, you know, it's hard. Bang, bang, bang. Put it on. The club visibly deflates. People leave the dance floor. The a guy looking at me, and he does this gesture with his hands, push, pushing his hands upwards like this, as if to say, Well, oh, come on. I was on there for two hours, the longest two hours of my life.
0: I've had endoscopies that are more fun than that. I'm feeling queasy just hearing this story. It sounds horrible.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, you know, it's a good life lesson. It's funny. Yeah. But, um... The thing now is, you've got these USBs with every record you could want on there. Now, you can also have the tyranny of choice, too much choice. Mm. So, with digital DJing now, you have to have things in folders. That's my tip. In folders, so you know what sort of things. Right, I'm in there. Because you, otherwise, you've got too much choice, you won't choose anything. But I didn't have enough choice then. And what that was, was an example of the brand's not working. People just going, let's get this art guy on. I'm sure he's good, and everyone fooling themselves that I was the right person, and I wasn't. Now every DJ I know has had that moment, yeah. And that's a very, and that is a very good lesson in life.
0: On the USB thing, the other challenge that you have, I find with um, going somewhere with a digital DJ, and if someone asks you for something yeah. and you say you've not got it, it's a lot harder to to deal with like generally now I like going out just with vinyl because you can just say I've not got it and people go oh all right whereas like tonight I'm going somewhere and it's a bit like you like I don't know what the energy level is going to be like because since I started buying records again because I kind of I thought I'm not DJing I made a few decisions with what, what type of DJing I was doing that just kind of sucked the fun out of it a little bit for me so yeah I thought I'm not doing it and then we had our little boy and then like as he, as he was approaching too I was like I think I want to start DJing again get a bit of identity again so yeah. I started buying again but buy a lot more stuff where like we, we talked on the other one about curator versus performer and I'm a lot yeah. more about the curation it's a bit like I want to curate the atmosphere I'm not I'm not a performer yeah so I've I've got stuff to create certain atmospheres and I'm off to this place yeah. that I've not been to before going back to you saying about doing your homework and so I've I've borrowed Serato off my mate with a load of Like nicely laid out folders because I don't want to get there and be like my stuff's not the right energy for a nine till one set. My stuff seven till nine. So yeah, it's 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 a tricky one with with the digital and the analog, the 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 benefits and the challenges. You know, some DJs are very lucky to play for the
1: right people, but even they will have you know some drunk woman coming up to you. The work that you get two two or three really bad types. You get the drunk woman who tells you that she wants something that. She wants to dance to. You can never give in to these people because they they don't know what they're talking about. Because when you start, and you don't have confidence, you think, I'll do that and they'll dance. And they will dance. But after two records, you've totally lost your flow and they've come off, so you've ruined it. Yeah. So you have to learn to be sort of quite strict. So they'll say, do you take your quest? Mostly just say no. Yeah. Also, if there's that type, there is also the bloke who thinks he's an MC? That like, used so a really big thing in the nineties. The guy go, "Have you got a mic? Can I MC?" And you know, especially if they were an obvious psycho, that was really hard. <laughs> so can I MC? Well, I don't really do that. Yeah, you're dead if you don't let me MC. Yeah, who do you think you are? You know what I mean? And you yeah. just get that. And there is a thing as a DJ because I don't go with the chippy. And tell the fellow who fries my fish out of fry. But people see a DJ. And they think a DJ is uh, a jukebox. And as a DJ you're not. You should be sensitive to their needs. But you shouldn't do what they say. Like any media isn't it. You know if you're. If I am editing a magazine. For vintage car owners. I don't do what they say. But I'm aware who they are and tailor what what I produce for that. And I think that is where we go to with DJ and creativity in general. Know your audience, tailor it to them, but don't let them tell you what to do. Yeah. Um, Do you see what I mean?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think over that, you've just given me so much stuff to think about and hopefully for the listeners as well, because there's a lot of really interesting insights there. The other thing I'd just ask you is that, is there anything that you think we've missed off that would be... Um, good advice for someone who's looking to start DJing. Yeah, okay, so if I was looking to start DJing,
1: um, what would I do? First, you've got to love it, right? You've got to love music. And that, that sounds really obvious, but don't think, I want to be a DJ because I want to be famous, right? That was it. You've got that a lot in the 90s. Two years later, they're selling the decks. So you've got to be a music lover already. You've got to be endlessly curious about new music, right? And then what you've got to do, you've got to learn, I would say, how to promote a night. And it's good if you get a partner who is maybe your DJ and maybe you know someone who's got a bit of gift of the gap, a bit of a salesperson, whoever he or she is. You can say to them, right, I've got this night. I want to play this sort of music. I want to play soul and hip hop, right? I've noticed that no one in Sheffield or no one in Sunderland playing soul and hip-hop in the middle of the week. I think we could get a load of people to go along, all my right? Work with a promoter, you know, and then you have to bang it. You bang it on the socials, you bang it in shops in town, tattooists, hairdressers, record shops everywhere. If you're going to make a name for yourself as a DJ, you have to do something else. You could do what I did, which was making records, or be a writer. Yeah, I got myself a residency. But I would say a love of music is important. And a thick skin is really important. Because people are going to tell you how much they hate what you're doing. So you're DJing, someone hates your music. You're DJing, no one turns up. You're DJing, the amplifier goes. So that's a really common one. You're doing a party, it's great. And then the amp Blows. And they have blows and there's no more music, right? No one forgives you. No one thinks, oh, that's sad for them. They, they say, come on, DJ, put the record back on. Yeah. These are all things you are gonna have to go to. Know your
0: equipment, practice endlessly. Yeah. Do you do you think that it's harder now to start DJing because everyone accesses so much different music Yeah, stylistically? But then on the flip side of it. People are a lot more receptive, perhaps, to different styles of music.
1: Yeah, the DJ is an accepted form of entertainment for a bar or a club. Yeah, so there's a lot of, you know, and and bars will think, well, we can get a DJ on, pay him two and quid, and we'll get a load of punters in till half two, and we'll easily make our money back. So it, the DJ, as a person, is an accepted, an accepted form of entertainment. And if you were running a bar, you might think, well, we'll have a DJ on a Friday night. Yeah. So in a way, there's more opportunity, but it doesn't have the the huge cultural heart, the revolution of the '90s. It just doesn't. Doesn't mean it's not as good, but it's different. You know, all over the cl- country in the '90s, you would go to a you know a club in a one horse town, and there's 700 people in there on ecstasy. That's not really happening anymore. So you don't get that peak level. There's just quite a lot of it around if you want it. Um, but to stand out, yeah, you've got to promote. You've got to promote yourself. You've got to promote at night. You've got to put records out. You've got to put mixes out. You've got to put stuff on Instagram. But never, never, and I'd say this to anyone in the creative art, never look as though someone's doing you a favor. If you say, okay, oh, just put me on as a favor, that turns people off. What you want is to solve a problem. You know a bar, by you where you live that's empty on a Friday night, right? You can go and solve the owner's problem by putting on your hip-hop and soul night. Be a solution to someone. Do you see what I mean there? That's amazing, yeah. Yeah, that's really good. Solve a problem, yeah? Your big club where the big DJs play, they don't need you, right? They will only come to you once you've made a name somewhere else. So you have to do something else somewhere else. So look around town, think, that club's really empty on Thursday nights. I reckon I could get all my mates in there. They all like going out. We can all go out there on a Thursday night and I can make the owner some money. Yeah, you know, And also, when you start, you want to get a club gang around, right? That you know You're the promoting team, you're the DJ. Get a gang of mates who will come out Once you're past about 28, people don't come out. But under that, especially under students, they'll come out. Get them to think that this is a great night and it's a real laugh. And then for everyone who says, say 100 people say they'll come, count on 30 coming. Yeah, totally agreed on that. Yeah. We all say this. Yeah, I'll come out and then don't come out, right? About a third of people will
0: show up. I think another one as well is don't take... Your first night as a sign of what it's going to be like because a lot more nope. people will come to your first one out of some loyalty, yeah. And when it's regular and they might yeah. have other options, yeah, it's like a false yeah, story,
1: yeah, absolutely. You, yeah, I, I would say so. People go, All right, yeah, I've not, not out this week, you know, I'm going to go to work on Friday. So I'll be aware of one. that, come to the next one, so maybe you don't have too many, you know. um Have a look at your local market. What's missing? What can you do? And then build it from there. You know. Yeah. And when you build it. And when people start to get to know you. They'll come to you. Yeah. And then you can negotiate better rates of pay. You know. If you go to. You know. Early on you're going to get paid nothing. Or 30 quid or 50 quid. Later on if your brand is good enough and they trust you you'll start doing all right you know so again these are all lessons in whatever field you know you could be a doctor you know you only really learn to be a doctor once you've done you know your time in hospitals you might have the exam and then after that you've suddenly got a reputation as a great doctor and you're getting offered nice consultancies you know all yeah. these things are the same
0: that's amazing um thanks for coming on Anthony. Yeah. yeah. Um, Where can people find you online and find a bit more about you and Umbrella and all the sort of work you're doing? Okay, so you'll find me uh, on Twitter, Anthony Teasdale, uh, and on
1: Instagram, same, Anthony Teasdale. I'm on Mixcloud for my DJ mixes, and I am on Soundcloud for the music that I actually make. You can go to Umbrella Magazine, which is uh, me and my friend Matt Reynolds... And that is a that's been going for about twelve years now. That's a magazine about urban life, about culture, photography, art, geography, loads of things. So I'm all over the place, you know. And again, I'm all over the place because I have to be all over the place, yeah. And you know, I just put a new track on my SoundCloud, so that's there. Some great mixes on my MixCloud. My Twitter is strong, so I'm entertaining. I'll put a lot of music on there. And again, if you're looking at being a dj that's what you have to do brilliant
0: thanks so much for your time and it's anthony anthony with an h as well isn't it it's th
1: yeah yeah yeah
0: t-e-a-s like the drink p-a-l-e awesome it's all right mate that was brilliant thanks for listening to the once a dj podcast if you've got any questions or feedback or any suggestions for guests Please just get in touch with us at onceadjpodcast at oh, gmail.com nice. or on Instagram at onceadjpodcast. Take care, and we'll speak to you soon. Ah, oh, that was nice.